Right. This is our time when we usually head overseas, and this morning we go to Boston. Celeste Katz-Marston is with us. Celeste, good morning. Good morning. Having a little bit of a rough connection this morning, so I hope you'll bear with me. Well, there's a reason for that, isn't there? What's happening? I mean, this is bizarre for Boston, surely. Yeah, right right now we're actually under a tornado warning here, so I don't know if that is affecting our communications, uh, technology, Wi-Fi, I'm not sure what's going on, but just to let you know, it's a a little bit rough hearing, so I'll do my best. Okay, but is it usual? I I can't ever, I never think of Boston as being in the path of a tornado. Uh, Typically not. This is not something we see very often. We just had some really heavy rain coming through uh, a moment ago, uh, super heavy, and wind, uh, thunder, lightning. I think it's passing by, but it seems to be headed up the coast, so I hope people up there are are, uh, being careful as well. All right. Now, the big story, of course, this week, and probably one of the biggest stories of the year, considering it's been a big year news-wise, has been... Well, not the decision to withdraw the troops from Afghanistan, because that was made. It was the fact that it all came down, falling down so quickly. And it seems like, again, the US has been caught kind of flat-footed about this. What's your take on what's happened in Afghanistan and the response you know, by uh, the president? Uh, Well, look, I mean, from everybody I've talked to, uh, including uh, close friends of mine who served in uh, Afghanistan in the U.S. military, uh, people who covered it as reporters, I think that there was generally a sense that it was time to go home, that there was that there was not a compelling reason to stay there perpetually, that this was going to have to happen at some point, uh, I I do think, and I think from what we're seeing, um, you know, pulling out quite this rapidly, especially when it came to evacuations of civilian population, um, may have been uh, handled uh, a little hastily. And, And we're seeing some of that now in terms of the president sending in more troops to make sure that Um, American diplomatic staff, um, Afghan citizens who worked with uh, um, American units, uh, American diplomatic and military units there are going to be able to get out. But look, I mean, there's no no way to say it without sounding pretty callous, but whenever we pulled out, there were going to be problems. And and we're seeing that now. It's just that it's very hard to watch. And I think in hindsight, people are wondering if any earlier warnings about how quickly this would fall apart were were uh, you know, sufficiently considered when they made these plans. Now, this is not. I mean, this is obviously a problem that Biden inherited. President Biden inherited. He inherited partly from himself because he was vice president under President Obama, who also planned to pull the troops out, uh, but he never went through with it, knowing full well, I presume, what would happen. President Trump announced that uh, he would be pulling the troops out and I think it was going to be May. Uh, Mike Pompeo, the uh, Trump Secretary of State, went over there and made a pretty extraordinary deal with the Taliban, basically giving them everything they want without getting pretty much in return. And now President Biden basically bit the bullet and said, well, we're out. And I just think they could have done it a little slower and, you know, had troops there. (sighs) 
But who knows? I mean, they've got to get out at some point. The problem is the government that's going to take over is an appalling bunch of people who treat women and then children and all sorts of people, you know, appallingly. But what else can they do? I mean, was the Americans, were they going to stay there for the rest of their lives? I mean, there were people, I'm sure, serving in Afghanistan who were not born when that war started, and that is wrong. I think that one of the probably one of the most compelling lines in, in President Biden's address to the nation about Afghanistan was, was simply saying that, look, he can't we can't continue to put American lives on the line. And, and I'm sure this goes for the other countries who are, are fighting there as well, whether it be troops from Australia, from the UK, from lots of places. It's hard to justify us fighting a war that the Afghans do not want to fight themselves. Yes. And if you look at the reports of Afghans laying down their weapons, essentially providing no resistance, but also before that, um, you know, payrolls filled with ghost soldiers, people who didn't exist or people who were um, being paid, but essentially not doing the work for which they were being paid. Um, you know, that's that's very frustrating. Now, could the United States have approached the entire thing differently? It's easy for somebody like me to Monday morning quarterback that and say, well, you can't just sort of transplant, um, you know, a, a G7 or G8 Western system yes. into, um, you know, an, an, um, an ancient culture that has different, you know, different history and different values. But, uh, you know, the, the short answer is... Um, how much longer were we going to stay there? Um, so maybe the maybe the withdrawal could have been handled more smoothly, but I, I think the overarching issue is that as painful as this is, there was not going to be substantial benefit to staying there another five years or ten years or even you know one year really. Mm. And we've abandoned them virtually to their fate. Although you know they had their own government, which fell in less than a week or in a, in a day, basically he left. You know, I couldn't help but think, you know, it's now become, you know, this famous picture of the Taliban sitting in the uh, the Afghan president's office. And it in some ways reminded me of what we saw in January this year with people, that bloke sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office. Like, the, the you know, the, the, the opposition has taken, not the opposition, but the, the insurgents had taken over the government at that point, or at least government offices. To me, those, those pictures are very, very similar. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, I apologize if I'm having any, any trouble hearing your, your questions, but, um, you know, there, there were certainly people in the country who uh, cooperated with uh, U.S. And, and Western forces, people who wanted to defy the Taliban. But, you know, again, even uh, with um, the best of Western military training, you have to remember that the infrastructure that was going to be left behind with Afghan fighting forces was simply, you know, not not going to be equal to the task necessarily. I, I mean, you know, bottom line, if you don't have an air force, if you don't have uh, the ability to refuel, to repair equipment, if you have people who are um, being paid by the Taliban or by, uh, you know, a hostile force to essentially not fight, you know, as opposed to risking their lives and fighting and not being paid or not being treated well or not having any, um, you know, not having any assurances that they and their families will be treated properly uh, after the conflict is over and that the government will be functioning. 
you know, you can see why some people wanted to walk away from that. Mm. Unfortunate, unfortunate as it sounds. So maybe in terms of, you know, the the logistical part or the the sort of diplomatic part of of this operation. You know, there there were gaps there, obviously, mm. and, and that's really unfortunate because, again, talking to people that I know who were personally involved, who volunteered to serve in the U.S. military and spent, you know, many tours. Uh, fighting there and doing their best and risking their lives. It's very painful for a lot of Americans to look at this and wonder if it was all for nothing. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I don't question. think it's all for nothing. But... No, because what we've got to do is think about the last 20 years and the women who've been able to be educated, the women and girls, the women who are able to lead a relatively normal life for 20 years and for all the perhaps uh, terrorist attacks that didn't happen because the Taliban were in retreat and they weren't state-sponsoring terrorism. That's what we need to think about about over the last 20 years, that there are a whole lot of terrible things that didn't happen and a lot of good things that did happen that unfortunately, now what? Are we now in a situation where those women will not be given those opportunities and also that it will be a haven for terrorism? And is that what is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, look, as, as somebody who was in Manhattan on 9-11, I can certainly tell you that, uh, you know, when it was presented to us that if, if there was any possible way to prevent the, you know, to prevent terror from metastasizing uh, overseas and coming to our shores again, you know, I and people like me, millions of people like me, we're certainly, certainly all for that. And you can say that, look, looking back again at the last 20 years, we have not seen a repeat of, of the World Trade Center. I, I worked in that building. You know, it, it's, you know, we didn't see a repeat of, of the Pentagon. Um, and so in, in that sense, was, was this successful? Yeah, I mean, you have to believe it was, it was so because more, more blood was, was not shed. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, we have a, greater, a much greater threat now uh, from domestic terrorism than we do from foreign terrorism in the United States. That's, that's another story. You and I have talked it's about that. Indeed. But yeah, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. Celeste Katz-Marston is our guest in Boston. Uh, Okay, so then on the domestic front, you know, in Australia, we've just gone beyond, I think, 50% of the population having at least one shot, something like that. Uh, In the US, you're up way beyond that with two shots. However, we're now looking at three shots. I think we're getting differing opinions about whether people need a booster or how soon they need a booster. It's coming around very quickly. Maybe we're going to need this for the rest of our lives or until we really get COVID under control, which, you know, at the moment is not looking like it's happening, is it? Yeah, I mean, you know, and again, with apologies, I'm sorry to keep repeating it again with apologies for the uh, the bad connection here. Um, yeah, we're in the United States, we're uh, just about uh, 51, 51 and a half percent of people who are fully vaccinated, um, just under 61 percent or so who have at least one dose. And now they're talking about a third, um, a booster shot, a third shot for people who receive the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines. Um, and this is not necessarily for the population at large, at least not right away, but we're talking about people who are immunocompromised, people who have uh, received uh, an organ transplant, people who are undergoing chemotherapy, uh, or might have some other uh, situation or condition that would lead them to be more vulnerable. Uh, from everything that we're seeing and hearing, um, you know, you still do have protection and you will have protection for months after receiving your second shot, but there will be some waning of the, of the efficacy of the vaccine. 
um, and uh, I'm sure, as, as is the case in lots of other places, the real problem continues to be with people who are not vaccinated at all. Um, you know, people who refuse the vaccine, people who have, have not uh, been able to find a place to get the vaccine. And the thing that's becoming really scary now, including with the rise of the Delta variant, is that we're starting to see more cases in children. Um, the vaccine is authorized in the United States for uh, use in children 12 or older. And uh, we're right around the corner from sending kids back to school. And so now there are a lot of plans and questions about, well, are we going to have masking and social distancing in schools? Are we not going to have kids go back to schools? We're already seeing in some places where um, thousands and thousands of children are in quarantine after being exposed to the virus. So, you know, the hopes that we have for the vaccine, a lot of those hopes did come true. But at the same time, um, lack of vaccination in some people who refuse it and the inability to vaccinate the youngest children are, are two major concerns. So yeah. um, as far as when the, uh, the rollout of the booster will be, we're looking at, you know, in the next few months, um, you know, how that coincides with getting uh, shots into the arms of younger children, of course. Uh, you know, that, that's still something that they tell us, at least that they're, they're working on at, uh, at the greatest speed possible. Yeah, but aren't people also thinking, hang on a minute, there is, you know, half the population haven't even had one shot, and yet we're giving other people three shots. Yeah, I mean, there's, well, there's um, some concern about how, how to convince people. Like, what can you do at this point to convince people to uh, get the shot at all if they don't want it or, you know, if they're still skeptical, if they think it hasn't been fully proved, fully tested, and so on. And then they're trying everything. We've had free beer giveaways. We have uh, lotteries where you can win a million dollars. You, literally, you can win a million dollars if you get vaccinated. Um, you know, we've had celebrity endorsements. We've had uh, mobile clinics. We've had uh, all sorts of inducements. So the thing that, you know, worries a lot of people um, is that, you know, what if we really have gotten to the point where pretty much everybody who wants the vaccine has gotten it? You know, what do we do with everyone else? And if the virus, if they keep spreading the virus... Uh, we now know that it's possible even to spread the virus, if not get really sick, yes. but to spread the virus if you are vaccinated. Uh, children can carry the virus. So I think that, you know, this is something that is, is going to be part of our lives for a long time. And maybe mm. we'll have to get used to having a, a COVID shot every year the same way we would get a, a flu shot exactly or a pneumonia right. shot. Yeah. All right. Now, just before we go, you know, one of the things that's always confusing is clothes sizing because you might be a large you might be an extra large you might be a medium i don't know and you go and try something on and of course it doesn't match at all and it's you know also you know it it it's 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 also unfair to people sometimes they might be an extra large and they think hang on i'm not an extra large i don't know then you go over to the u.s and, you know, you're looking at a whole different range of sizes as well. And then in Europe, they're different range of sizes. What is Old Navy doing? Yeah, so Old Navy, which is, and, and I don't know, do you have, old, do they have Old Navy stores in Australia? We do not. The Gap Company. Yeah, that's one of the great reasons okay. to go to America is go to the Gap and Old Navy and uh, Banana Republic and places like that. We do have the Gap, but I think most of those stores are closed down, unfortunately. 
Yeah, so what, what do they have about, you know, 1,200 or more than 1,200 stores plus online stores in the United States? And what they're trying to do is they're sort of trying to equalize, you know, um, how people who need bigger clothing sizes are, are sort of have their experience in shopping. Like for a, in a lot of places, like bigger size clothing, what they're called plus size clothing, is a separate section. Um, and clothing is shown on mannequins that are generally um, built to model smaller size clothing. And, you know, and the other thing is obviously, as you know, um, you know, commercials, magazine ads, all these things tend to show clothes on small people. So what they're trying to do is they're now going to integrate sizes from zero to 28, all in the same section, like in the women's section, it's going to be from size zero to 28. And they're going to show mannequins in size four, U.S. size four, U.S. size 12, and U.S. size 18. And so they're really trying to sort of just basically not segregate people out or make them feel sort of, you know, shunted off literally to the side or to a, you know, a different corner of the store. But, you know, part of this is an understanding that sizing and sizes have changed over time. People are bigger. You know, what might have been, you know, Marilyn Monroe, I think, was yes. something like a size 10 or a size 12 dress. Now that would be like, what, like a four two or four i mean it doesn't as i've say, never it doesn't worked out sense, women's sizes at all never i've never had to but i've yeah, never understood uh, i haven't figured it out <laughs> exactly i think uh, marilyn Monroe would be considered obese these days for some reason i don't know why um look just a couple of t- i will say <laughs> well tomorrow morning on the show we're going to talk in a lot more detail about afghanistan Ian says it's the end for Joe Biden. The American media has turned on him. Peter in Portland says excuses. Let's blame Trump, who hasn't been in charge for five months, but it's his fault. Well, it partly is his fault. He wanted to get out in May, in fact, rather than now. And, in fact, Peter, I would urge you, read what Mike Pompeo did. Read the agreement he came to with the Taliban and then come back and uh, defend that because I think it was uh, that is, is what laid the groundwork for what we're going through right now. But anyway, I'm sure we will talk about that again, Celeste. Stay well, so keep your head down, and stay out of that uh, tropical cyclone, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much.